there's a great attraction to know what people used to look like. I can remember television shows from years back where they would do features on celebrities and what they looked like and what they did before they became the famous people we knew them as. Now, this phenomenon is obviously not something that has gone away because now you can hardly navigate a website without some sort of what did so-and-so look like before they were famous clickbait article staring at you, trying to get you to click. And if you've ever clicked on one of these, the proof of the allure of this information is the fact that often you have to click through pages upon pages upon pages laden with ads to get to these pictures. They think that you'll click through all this stuff to see this information. There is a draw here. We want to know what people used to look like. These stories, these, these pictures that they show, they're banking that after you see a picture of one celebrity or one person that, that you were interested in what they used to look like, they're even thinking maybe you'll like to see more. There they are. This is a draw for us. And this isn't just the case with famous people. We want to know what our new friends used to look like. And when we get opportunities, we want to see pictures of these people and, well, we jump at it. Many a young child on Wednesday evening, somebody mentions the fact that I used to have very different hair and the kids want to see a picture very badly and they are shocked by what they find. And this goes back to just our families even. I can remember thinking back as I was thinking about this idea of wanting to remember what people looked like or, or wanting to know what they looked like a long time ago, I remember how much time I used to spend sitting on my grandmother's couch paging through the photo albums. Now, I'd seen them before, but I would look at them at least once or twice a month because it was good, fun to see my mother, my father, my sister, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, what they all used to look like compared to what we, I knew them as at that time. Well, it's interesting, as it would be, to have all this kind of information about Jesus, to be able to go back and see so many stories from when he was growing up, or see pictures, or to know these kind of things. We don't really know much about it. The Gospel of Luke doesn't really give us much background information of what Jesus was like when he was younger. We would like to know if he did any miracles, or we would like to know how he interacted with others on a day-to-day basis. But we don't know any of that. Wouldn't it be interesting to know how the incarnate Son of God, the one who kept the law perfectly, obeyed as a young child? Wouldn't that be fascinating? Now, young children, you wouldn't like that because, you know, can you imagine? Billy, why can't you be more like Jesus? That... That would be awful, right? But it would be interesting to know all these types of things. Well, the truth of the matter is about Jesus is that everyday life was probably like our everyday lives. And when we are brutally honest about it, everyday life is pretty boring. And I'm sure it was so even for God the Son, who had taken on flesh to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. I'm sure everyday life was boring, ordinary. 
You would think that it would be probably pretty interesting stuff, but let's stop for a moment and think about that. For the most part, even the three-year ministry of Jesus probably wasn't too terribly exciting on a day-to-day basis, right? He had three years of ministry. And Luke tells the story of Jesus in 24 chapters. Mark tells it in 16. And Matthew logs in at 28 chapters. And there's a considerable amount of material that's repeated in the Gospels between those three Gospels. And then John, who has quite a bit of new material, his gospel is still only 21 chapters. Less than Luke, less than Matthew, but more than Mark. Three years summed up into what takes up, you know, what, that much of our Bibles, even in large print? It wasn't exactly a thrilling, enthralling thing. And as I mentioned last week, this shows us that Jesus did not show up and have a hyper-busy life as a, as a dignitary who was born into the right family and was destined to rule with earthly power. Instead, he came into our very own flesh, and he lived, he breathed, just like you and I do. And this is important, because we understand that he came to save us from the curse that plagues these very ordinary, boring bodies that we carry around with us. But in the midst of all the normalcy. We don't, hear, we, we don't hear too much about the early life of Jesus, but here in Luke 2, we get a glimpse, and it's a great story. It's like that friend of yours who shows you their high school yearbook photo, and they have a mullet. This is a great picture of what, of, of a great story of what Jesus was like, what he was pursuing, what he did. This picture that we see of Jesus in this story shows us about who he is, but more importantly, who he is going to be. And so today, as we look at this text, we're going to break it down, not into the usual three points, but we're going to have two. The story isn't very detailed. Now, the last time I only broke it down into two stories, I had somebody who watches our sermons or listens to our sermons in Australia tell me that he was thrown off by only two points. But he survived, and you did too, so I feel comfortable only doing two points again this week. And so here we have them before us. The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. The family had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover, and on the way home they realized that Jesus is not with them. And this leads to concern and to them retracing their steps to find the young Jesus. And then secondly, we see that they do find him, and he is in Jerusalem, and he is among the teachers in the temple. While Jesus is just a young man, what we read about him growing in stature and wisdom proves to be true. While he is just a normal boy, he is not a normal boy. He is the Messiah, and we see that the favor of God rests upon him. And so we land in this well-known story this morning and see further evidence that the family of Jesus is once again a faithful Hebrew family. Last week, we saw a story about the two elderly prophets testifying to the identity of Jesus as the promised one. And we saw there that the family of Jesus was consistent in keeping the things that were required of them in the law. And we also learned that they were not well off. Remember, we we saw that they couldn't even bring a lamb for the sacrifice. They had to take two birds because they were too poor. There was an exception in the law that allowed them to bring 
an extra bird instead of a lamb, and they had to do that. This was not a well-off family. They were a poor family. Now, those details don't seem like much to us because we're not first-century Hebrew natives, but it does tell us something really important about the social class that Jesus was born into. Regardless of how much money they had, they were faithful to keep the commands of God. Jesus, even before he's physically able to do so, is keeping the law on our behalf through his family. This is important. And we see this idea continuing to be fleshed out for us at the beginning of this story. They make their way to Jerusalem every year, it tells us, just as they were required to do. They kept the law. And they do this every year, but this year, we're invited along for a reason. And we just happen to also see that Jesus is 12 years old. Now that may not seem like a significant detail, but it is. We'll see that in a moment. But first we see that this was just what they always did. It's it's kind of interesting to think about Jesus getting together with his family and his extended family and making the journey to Jerusalem. And look at the reason they're going. The Passover Think about that. Jesus is going for the Passover. And one day, he is going to be our Passover lamb. Now, we don't know that part of the story yet from Luke, but we know it from being Christians. We know that the boy Jesus is going to the cross. He is going to be the sacrifice for our sins. And while Jesus is there in Jerusalem every year on the Passover, faithfully going for all the years of his life, the Passover lamb is slain. This ritual is happening. And all the the whole time, Jesus is there. And this is amazing to think about. The Passover lamb is slain. And a young boy, an older boy, a man, he is there. And that whole story the whole ritual they're doing, the feast, the slaughter of the lambs, all of that is pointing to him. They've been doing it for generations. And now, the one that it's pointing to is there. That is is an amazing thing to think about. The fulfillment of what they're doing is standing among them. Well, anyway, when the feast ends, they head home and Jesus stays behind. And we, we don't know how this happened, We don't know what the circumstances were that he was left behind. Now, I mentioned previously that Jesus was 12 years old. Well, the way that families went to the feasts was to travel with their extended family. And they would sing songs together. They would stop and eat. You know, they couldn't pull off and go through the drive-thru at McDonald's. So they they would have to stop, and they would have to eat. All of this is a big caravan. Well, another detail that we know about these groups of people was that they would often travel with the women and the children in front and with the men in the back. Now, we don't know if this is the reason that Jesus got separated from Mary and Joseph, but this is part of the speculation. At the age of 12, both parents could have easily assumed that Jesus was with one group or the other. He was on the verge of of being a man at that age, but he may have also been with the women and the children because that's where his family was, that's where his friends were, and so it would have been easy to to lose him, potentially. An honest mistake, and 
You could also assume that they're just naturally moving. They've probably done this before. Jesus has walked this trip before. He's going to get together with his friends and his family and move forward. Now, as we think about this, there's one thing that John Blumendahl told me a joke this past week, so I'm going to, if, if you don't laugh, you have to blame him. But he said, with this story, if you ever feel bad as a parent, remember Mary and Joseph lost Jesus for three days. You've never done that. Right? Doesn't that make you feel good as a parent? It, it, they laugh, John, so you're good. But regardless of, of how this whole thing goes down, you can probably pretty easily imagine the reaction when they came to the realization that he wasn't in the caravan. Oh my goodness, I've misplaced the Son of God. Imagine what you're thinking. What kind of parents are we? Regardless of whether the child is the incarnate God the Son or not, you can imagine that any parent would have been concerned, that the panic would have been real. When did we lose him? Is he okay? What do we need to do to find him? And all of this would have raced through their heads at unfathomable speeds. We see the story here from the long view, right? We see the whole story in just a matter of a few verses. We know how it resolves. But think about the, 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 the inner workings of this in their lives. They had gone on a day's journey without their child. He isn't just down the road a few hundred feet. He isn't just in another part of the store. He's been down the road, they've been down the road a day's journey, and they don't know where he is. He's a long way from them. And so eventually they return to Jerusalem looking for him, and and there they find him. And we move on to our second point there as we look at what Jesus uh, Jesus is doing. And so we look at verse 46, and you have to appreciate those three words there. As I mentioned in, in that joke, after three days... Imagine three days. I'm guessing at some point, either you couldn't find a child for a few moments, and it felt like three days, but it was only just a little amount of time. Or maybe you were the child who inadvertently got away from your parents, and you realize you can't find your mom and dad. I'm guessing a few seconds felt like several minutes, right? Imagine Imagine what this would have been like, not being able to find your child for three days. Put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. You're walking, you're searching, you're calling out his name, and nothing for three whole days. You have to stop, you have to rest, but I'm sure you can't sleep. And after these three days of effort, you find that he is just in the temple. Imagine the ground that you've covered and the effort that was expended shouting his name and asking people if they've seen him, and and then you find him in the one obvious, well-known location. There it sits. It's the temple. It's up up on the hill. It's a small plot of land. It's where you would have gone to do the sacrifices. It would have been the easiest place to find. You look for three days, and you finally end up at the temple, and well, there he is. Imagine the relief they must have felt at the end of all that. But then they get there, and, and what they observe is an amazing thing. There sits the 12-year-old Jesus sitting with the teachers. 
Now, my first question would have been, how did he gain an audience with them? I'm guessing he didn't walk up on, on uh, someone and say, hey, can I sit in on a session here at the temple? I'm guessing he likely began by asking questions of someone, and, and eventually his questions moved to other questions, and they were amazed at his understanding, and they, they came together, and eventually they end up sitting together and having these discussions. We don't know how this actually happened. We aren't given that information. But you can sort of imagine how this might happen with a 12-year-old boy. People being you know, marveled. We've all met that young child who he or she just were blown away by stuff that they know, and, and you're captivated by them. The same thing must have happened here. And what's most amazing isn't that he has an audience with them, but they're amazed at his understanding. And we read last week that Jesus was growing in wisdom, and here we see it on display. We don't know what's being said, but this isn't that they're impressed that he can recite a bunch of Bible verses like a kid who got all the badges at the Wednesday evening activities. That's, that's not what Jesus is displaying here. Almost every young person that was Hebrew would have been able to recite multiple, multiple verses. They could rattle off Scripture in, in an impressive way. That's not what they're impressed with here. The idea here that we see with Jesus, it's like what we see in other parts of the Gospels. Remember, they always say that Jesus teaches like one who has understanding, one who has authority, because he understood what was at the root of everything. He knew how it all pointed to the coming Messiah. He would have known the meaning of the types and shadows in a way that the religious leaders wouldn't have. We, we see this throughout the Gospels. You see, they would have seen the, the rituals as ultimate. They would have seen the sacrifices and the feasts as an ends unto themselves. But those things weren't the ultimate. That's what they weren't ever designed to be the final answer. The final answer is sitting there with the religious leaders. Jesus is the final answer. And so we see that, that he has understanding. We see that he confounds those around him. They're just amazed at his level of understanding. And so what we're seeing is it's likely that he had an understanding here that there's something more to the Word of God than just, just a bunch of rules to keep. It was all doing something more. And we can't know what it was that Jesus was saying or asking or amazing them with. But it is likely similar to what we see in other parts of the Gospels. He understands. He has authority in a way that people had never seen before, particularly in a 12-year-old boy. And as the passage continues, we see that his parents have to say, what their parents have to say to their son that they've been searching for tirelessly as we look at verse 48 and through 50. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of surprised by this statement about his parents being astonished. We, ju we just saw in the earlier parts of Luke just how amazing their lives have been up to this point, right? We saw in the earlier parts of Luke that Elizabeth was barren and she has a child in her advanced years. Mary is as barren as you can possibly be because she is a virgin, right? And yet she conceives a child. The angels announce his arrival to shepherds. Simeon and Anna know that he's the Messiah when they go to the temple. There's been some amazing things that have happened. How in the world are Mary and Joseph amazed by what is happening here? Shouldn't they expect him to be able to hang with the religious leaders 
of the day? Isn't this what we would expect? But regardless of the reactions of Mary and Joseph, they don't seem to stay astonished for too long, do they? Mary asks them why he has treated them in this way and lets Jesus know what they've been through. And you parents might look at the response of Jesus and wonder how you would have responded to his answer. I'm guessing my reaction probably would not have been a very good one, walking around for three days looking for a child, and then you're told that you should have known where they were. Yeah. Anybody else would have been okay with that answer? I, I'm, I'm, there's smirks out there. Everybody's feeling what I'm feeling. Well, what we see is Jesus answering, where else would I be? And it's clear from what he has to say that Jesus was not doing this in a malicious way. He was not being rebellious. He was left behind because he, and he was in the temple learning and speaking and growing, having conversations with the religious leaders. And again, we see that his parents are confused. They, they know that he's the promised one. They know he's the Messiah, but clearly they don't understand this completely. And that's what Luke wants us to see here. This whole Messiah thing that people were waiting for, even Mary and Joseph don't have it figured out yet. Even his parents aren't getting this. And they've had all this revelation, and they don't understand. And we're going to see this throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. People like the idea of the Messiah, but they just don't know what to expect. But ultimately, it makes sense that Jesus is where he is, right? He is desiring to be where he can hear and grow in wisdom and understanding. He desires to grow and he desires to be in fellowship with the people of God. And as the passage concludes, as we look at verses 51 and 52, we see that even though Jesus feels this is the place that he should be, this is his father's house, he's still submissive to the parental authority that has been placed in his life. He goes back with Mary and Joseph. He feels that the temple is his father's house, but he knows the earthly authority that he has been put under is a good thing, and an important part of his life and ministry. And as I've drawn out so many times, his life is normal, his life is ordinary, and he's doing so many of the things that you and I are called to do as well. And he does them. He obeys his parents. He honors his father and his mother. He's living in an ordinary way. Jesus belongs where they found him, but he obeys his father and his mother. He is keeping the law on our behalf, even at the age of 12. He obeys God. And we see that Mary treasures all of these things up in her heart. Now, we don't know the bibliography of the Gospel of Luke, but we do know that he does a lot of research to write this gospel. And my personal opinion is that this smacks of Luke either having access to Mary directly or access to someone that she shared these things with. She cherishes these things. And you get the idea of, of what's going on in her life and how she understands these things. She's taking them in. She's considering them all. And then let's stop and think for a minute. Let's think about what's coming. And this sentence that she treasures all these things in her heart is heartbreaking. 
As a mother, she is, she is going to see so many good things about having a son who's the Messiah. But she likely didn't consider the promises of the Old Testament that said that this Messiah would suffer. For all these sentimental things that she's cherishing for her son, to be her Savior, he has to suffer and die. For all the things she treasured, there's in fact dread in Mary's future. But it will ultimately result in her salvation. For her son is going to bear the wrath of God for her sin. He is going to die in her place. He is going to rise again to guarantee her eternal life. What a beautiful thing to think about. She cherishes these things, but ultimately, even the dread that is coming in her life is for her good and for God's glory. And as we finish up chapter 2, we see a familiar phrase. Once again, we learn that Jesus is continuing to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke is once again reminding us that while Jesus is growing and doing the ordinary things that all people experience, Jesus is different. He is set apart. The favor of God is upon him. Now we're going to be taking a few weeks break from Luke for Advent and for Christmas Day. But soon we're going to be seeing in Luke the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus and how the words of Luke here about Jesus let us know just how amazing this earthly ministry of Jesus is going to be. But what do we do here with what we've seen in Luke 2 today? It's a story that we were likely pretty familiar with, obviously. I had a joke about it, so it's a, it's a common story. We understand the story. But it's really important that we understand that this is moving towards something. It's moving towards what Jesus is going to do for us. It's at the heart of his ministry and his life for us. But I think there's something that is very applicable for us as we prepare to step out into the world this week. There's some good application that we can get. Now, as I've mentioned before from here in the pulpit, and I've, I know I've mentioned it with several of you uh, in personal conversation. I have really enjoyed digging into these first two chapters of Luke outside of the Christmas season. Usually we attach these passages with sentimental feelings and memories we have from Christmas, and that's all awesome, but that we're sort of thinking about it in that way, and it's been really good for me to read through the text and study the text in a deeper way than I normally would, because it helps us to see everything that maybe we'll miss because we have trees and lights and gifts and busyness and, and meals clouding our vision. So I think about that as I think about what we do with the passage today. We need to look back on what we've seen in Luke so far. This has set us up unbelievably well to treasure the coming of Jesus. In some degree, we have all lamented the commercialization of the holiday season, right? Because it's, it's unavoidable. As much as we want to cherish the reason for the season, shopping, family gatherings, travel, and all the other trappings of the holidays, they are an unavoidable reality for us. But as we go into the season this year and we prepare for Christmas, 
May we truly treasure what we have seen as we move towards celebrating the arrival of the Christ child on Christmas Day. May we marvel at the promise that God keeps to his people as we again hear the story of the virgin conception. May we rejoice with the angels that God's promises come to the least of these like the shepherds. And if God's promises can go all the way to the shepherds, they can reach the ears and the hearts of sinners like us. May we treasure the truth that this Christ child is born and that he took on our flesh not to come here and attain earthly power and to have authority of us and and, and oppress us like you and I would do if we had power. But instead, why did God the Son take on our flesh? So that he could suffer. So that he could die. That he might bear the wrath of God for our sin. And so as we head into the Christmas season, may we do what Mary did. May we think about the work of our Savior on our behalf. May we look back to the early chapters of Luke and understand and treasure what we're celebrating in Christmas in a new way. And may this lead us to respond in gratitude that we might live holy lives that bring honor, glory, and praise to Jesus for who He is and what He's done because we have seen here today that he came for us. He took on flesh and kept the law and did all these things on our behalf. And so as we prepare for Christmas, may we cherish and treasure the coming of Jesus for us. Amen.